So this podcast is just basically feedback on discussion board one and discussion board two, which covered the readings in lesson one and lesson two. And generally the posts were really, really good. Some very interesting discussions, really great examples. And I can tell that people who posted on the discussion board really engaged with the literature and the readings um, and the uh, movie in a very uh, insightful way and in a way that really reflected upon your own experiences and reality of the issues. And so I want to commend everybody who actually posted on the discussion board uh, for lessons one and lessons two. Um, in general, I would say that those posts that were really strong um, were able to grasp the concepts uh, that the readings were trying to emphasize, particularly this idea of democratic racism, and also were able to provide very clear examples of how those discourses operated. So, for example, uh, many of you talked about the discourse of denial, and you made some really good points about the fact that Canada has a tendency to um, deny that actually racism exists. And one way that they do this is often comparing themselves to the United States and saying, well, you know, that's not us. Um, and because the racism is extremely visible um, in the United States, um, there's a tendency to say that it is um, less prevalent in Canada uh, than it is in the United States. And the reality is that racism operates in Canada, it's been part of the history of Canadian society and continues to operate and oftentimes in similar ways as it does in the United States. So for those of you who noted this comparison as a way um, to foster that discourse of denial, good for you. Um, many of you gave examples that really challenged this discourse of denial you pointed to things like uh, the anti-Asian violence and racism, particularly given the current environment of COVID and how that type of anti-Asian racism and violence has really ramped up and the repercussions of that. And, you know, anti-Asian racism has been part of Canada's history even before COVID. Uh, you know, when we talk about um, immigration from places uh, in Asia, particularly um, the example of Chinese in Canada, who have been here for um, you know over a century, um, the reality is that the experience of Asian communities in Canada has always been one where it has been rooted in racism. And as we go through the course, you'll see um, examples of that as well. Uh, the kinds of also other kinds of examples included things like um, the role of the media in terms of the portrayal of different groups of, of people, uh, particularly when it comes to issues around crime. Also, you know, there is evidence of systemic patterns of racism and discrimination in Canada that we cannot deny and is becoming more and more visible. Um, and communities of color have often been aware of this, but uh, we have found ways in Canada to try to mask these forms of racism or these patterns, but they are patterns. So if we look at the incarceration rates of uh, people of color, particularly black and indigenous people in this country, overwhelmingly uh, overrepresented in our prison systems. Um, the idea of streaming in schools uh, is also another example of systemic racism. And so we see many of these um, 
uh, ways in which racism operates in our in Canadian society, despite uh, this discourse of denial. Many of you actually gave some really good examples. Um, the devaluation of visible minority credentials um, and knowledge and experience. Uh, what was also interesting is a few of you talked about, you know, the uh, fear of actually, you know, taking food uh, that is uh, non-European to schools or in public places for fear of being ridiculed or made to feel less as. And so, you know, I won't tell you how long ago I went to a public school, but uh, or even high school, and uh, that was a, you know, a, a very common uh, thing to be worried about. And so, you know, decades later, we're still seeing the same things, which is really problematic. Uh, a few of you gave some really good examples, also of the way in which that discourse is used by public figures like Doug Ford, who, you know, will openly say that, um, you know, the United States is not Canada, particularly when there are examples of racial violence, like um, the storming of the U.S. Capitol and uh, the death of people like um, uh, George Floyd. Um, and so Doug Ford and, you know, other political um, politicians and uh, have come out in Canada and said, well, you know, thank goodness we live in Canada because that doesn't happen here. And many of you have countered that by giving, uh, you know, examples of people of color who have been, you know, um, experienced violence and even killed at the hands of police. Uh, and, um, you know, not just in our policing system, but also in our healthcare system, our education system, uh, you know, where there's continual streaming of, of, of people of color into different parts of our education system, or even streaming into the, um, the prison uh, the school to pipe, uh, prison pipeline, which we'll talk about more in this course. Some of you talked about the the discourse of colorblindness or race evasiveness. And, you know, colorblindness is this idea that we don't see race. And so by saying that in terms of using that language, what you do is you ignore the reality of people who actually experience racism and very much on a, on a, on a daily uh, basis in you know, not just direct ways, but very systemic ways. And so by saying that, hey, I, I don't see race, what you do is you deny that, um, you don't validate that experience. Um, and the reality is many of you have given some examples about this notion of colorblindness being a fallacy because of, you know, you can just look to examples of portrayal in the media of different uh, people, particularly where it comes to crime and how, for example, people who commit crimes who are white are often portrayed in a much more positive way than somebody who is um, black or indigenous. Um, and then there are, you know, examples of the fact that, um, you know, we don't collect statistics on the basis of race in terms of COVID. However, we know the reality that communities of color are more negatively impacted uh, than um, uh, white communities, and particularly middle class and uh, upper class communities. And so this notion of colorblindness often um, is not a reality, but we usually invoke that discourse as a way to say that goes back to that idea of democratic racism, that we live in a liberal democracy, we treat everybody equally, and so therefore we can't be racist. Um, there were a couple examples too that I wanted to note uh, 
you know, people talked about, this, you know, how early is it to have those discussions with children around race? And that's something that we will be talking about in this course uh, a little bit more. Another person gave an example of resumes. And when you send out your resume and your name is a non-anglicized name, the number of callbacks you get are um, not that many. Uh, you know, so if you anglicize your name and send out that same resume, uh, you know, the number of callbacks you get will be much greater. And so we really can't say that we live in a colorblind society when all of these things um, are happening. And so, again, that's the discourse of colorblindness. Some of you talked about that discourse of blaming the victim and the idea that, you know, things that are happening to people or communities of color is really their own fault or the fault of their culture, which is somehow deficient, which doesn't value things like education, hard work, all of those liberal values. And so as a result of that, people are their, or cultures or uh, people of color are their own worst enemy uh, because of that. And so, um, and again, you know, it's not just race, we can be racialized in different ways, we can be racialized through religion. And we see that as well in terms of the notion of blaming the victim. Communities don't want to integrate. They don't want, they want to stay stuck in their own, um, you know, uh, uh, ways, which are seen again as deficient, right? When we talk about blaming the victim. And um, someone gave a really good example of how the media portrays this idea of blaming the victim. And they talked about the water crisis in indigenous communities uh, versus uh, in a, you know, a, a largely non-Indigenous um, and white community, and how the coverage of the media of this sort of E. coli in the water that created all sorts of health uh, problems for these communities, the way it was differentially portrayed in the media, uh, Indigenous communities were blamed for their own crisis where it came to water, whereby uh, non-Indigenous communities were seen as victims uh, of this crisis. Which goes back to now the another discourse, um, this notion of, of, of um, white victimization. Uh, that's another discourse, which is the idea that, you know, um, people who are white have also experienced racism. And look at them now, these communities have thrived. And it's just a matter of, you know, every community's got to start from the bottom and work their way up and go through these things. And then eventually they'll end up, uh, you know, being equal to all other communities. And the examples that are often used are, you know, European communities, particularly those from Southern Europe and also from Ireland, who, when they came to Canada, were racialized in ways where they weren't given the worst jobs, denied rights, denied housing, all of these kinds of things. So, you know, when we talk about, the, for example, the Irish, they were racialized in very similar ways to communities of color. And so um, this is not to deny that experience. That is experience is a historical experience that those communities um, can speak to um, and is part of the history of Canada. And so they did eventually in successive generations um, uh, uh, do better. Um, but what this discourse ignores is the history of colonization. Many of these um, communities from Europe that were racialized uh, in minoritized ways, they didn't have a history of colonizations whereby, whereby indigenous uh, and uh, people of color have had a history of colonization and that colonization is linked to, um, you know, the 
social construction of race. And so these communities like the black community, like the indigenous community, like South Asian communities, like Asian communities, um, that history of climbing or you know, starting from the bottom and eventually becoming uh, so-called uh, white uh, um, is not a reality uh, because you can't change that history of colonization. It's there and it's really linked to the, um, not just the past, but ongoing treatments of community of color and people of color who are so-called what we call visibly non-white cannot change skin color and so cannot um, assimilate, so to speak, into the dominant white society. Um, and so this idea of um, white victimization is a, really a fallacy. Um, someone gave a great example too of the notion of the model minority myth. Um, and again, noting that uh, with, the, with the Asian community, there's this idea of the model minority and that, um, you know, you, this is a community that has done well and they've, you know, they've thrived. And the, what this does is, again, it ignores the history of colonization. It homogenizes the Asian community. The reality is all communities are diverse, as is the Asian community. And yes, you will have successful, so-called economically successful people within communities, but you will also have communities that suffer economically and still do. And what this model minority myth does is it pits communities against one another and is usually used by the dominant to say, hey, look, this community can do well, why can't you? And so again, this again homogenizes communities. It ignores the racism that even quote, successful communities um, uh, experience. And it also pits communities against one another. And that's what white victimization does. It's saying that, hey, it's just going through the, the, the notions and eventually you'll do well, successive generations will do well. Um, but again, it denies uh, the different, the history of colonization. Then there's a, a discourse of equal opportunity. And many of you talked about the fact that this idea of equal opportunity assumes that there's a level playing field and everybody starts from that level playing field. But what it disregards is, as many of you pointed out, it disregards social capital or things like white privilege. Um, you know, the social networks that people have on the basis of race and class and so on. And, you know, some people gave some really good examples about how these, how this cultural capital is so pervasive in not just in the uh, field of employment, but even in our education system in terms of internships in terms of mentoring by professors or by faculty or the understanding of soft skills and what is valued uh, and how soft this notion of soft skills is actually racialized. Um, you know, the way you speak, the way you interact, all of these things um, are very Eurocentric. And so it puts communities of color, uh, particularly, um, or also new immigrant communities or communities where um, accents or devalues at a disadvantage. And so social hierarchy of Canadian, uh, uh, there is a social hierarchy of, of in Canada that still persists. And what that social hierarchy does is it creates an unlevel playing field. Uh, there were, as an example of someone talking about Canadian sports industry and how that hierarchy tends to lock people of color out of that industry. Um, and then again, someone talked about uh, the public versus private school and things like, 
you know, all the benefits that go with private school. And again, those are linked not just to issues around race, but the intersections of race and class. Um, and by virtue of not having access uh, to all of these kinds of resources, um, there can't be an equal opportunity when, because really what it means is that that um, playing field is not level. Some of you talked about the discourse of reverse, dis uh, reverse racism. And uh, this is often invoked by people from the dominant group who all of a sudden um, feel that their privileges, which they don't see as privileges, are being revoked. And they now feel that they themselves become the victim. And often we see this when there are equity-seeking measures that are put in place to recognize that certain groups have been historically marginalized and as a result of that have been excluded from different areas of our of Canadian society, whether it's employment, um, whether it's from political representation. And usually equity measures recognize that this there has been a historical inequity and really tries to address that. But in addressing that, what people of color color, sorry, what not what the dominant group or uh, people who don't belong to these marginalized communities fail to recognize is that they have benefited from that system. So when these equity measures come in, are put in place, they feel like they're, they're losing um, uh, something that is considered to them to be normative or equal when it's not because the playing field is not level. Um, and they often cite uh, rhetoric like merit, right? That it's based on hard work, it's based on, you know, competing equally. Um, and what they fail to realize is that, you know, people of color can work just as hard um, and still not have those doors open to them. And so instead of seeing these equity measures um, as what they are, which is leveling the playing field and addressing these historical inequities, they see them as a, a clawing back of their rights or their privileges, but they don't see what they have as privileges. Um, so again, this is this discourse of reverse racism, which many of you talked about and gave some great examples. Then there's that discourse of multiculturalism few of you talked about, and you gave some good examples. Um, this discourse really is about the idea that Canada is a multicultural society, and as such, we value you know, diversity, we value difference, we value uh, ethnicity, all of these kinds of things that make our society diverse. And so as a result of that, this discourse basically says that, you know, how can we be racist if we are multiculturalism? And the way that this discourse actually manifests itself, as some of you point out, are when you see things like, for example, the ban on the hijab in Canada, which puts this ceiling of, quote, tolerance on how much difference Canada is willing to accept. And so you see, you know, uh, the enactment of legislation, um, particularly in Quebec, that says that, you know, we're banning all sorts of religious um, uh, expression in the public sphere. And um, you also see this reality of multiculturalism in terms of, um, you know, the way, the limits that we put on what we see as being Canadian. And Canadian is often, again, when Canada's identity as a Eurocentric Christian identity becomes threatened, then the ideas of multiculturalism have gone too far. Or when we start to think about the ways in which communities of color and indigenous communities start to try to claim rights, uh, again, 
you know, it's the idea that um, you can only have so much difference in diversity, and that difference in diversity cannot um, challenge the structure of uh, white supremacy or European uh, privilege. Uh, the minute it does, then um, that's where you see this idea of banning or um, challenging this notion of difference. So uh, some of you gave an example of challenging foreign credentials, the outsourcing of professionals in um, you know, the current environment of COVID-19. We have so many foreign trained doctors, but our system doesn't um, recognize those credentials and make it very difficult for people in professions to be certified and to practice their professions in Canada. And someone talked about the idea that now we have a need for doctors and healthcare professionals because of COVID, and we have so many foreign trained professionals, but, you know, as a result of not recognizing um, their experience and credentials, we now have to look at outsourcing for healthcare. Um, and then someone t talked about this idea of uh, liberal values, the idea of individualism, truth, universality. Um, and again, the examples that were given was that, you know, with this discourse, there's this idea that we believe in the individual freedom of expression, everybody has it, and it should be exercised because we are a liberal democracy, so we don't put limits on people. But again, we see the contradiction when we talk about the banning of religious symbols like burqas and turbans and so on. And um, uh, again, um, or when indigenous communities start to stand up for their rights around treaties and land claim and so on. And then we start to demonize those communities. And this is where this idea of freedom of expression and individualism and so on, um, this is where it, it butts up against these kinds of things that challenge that. So many of you did really great job. And I think the majority of you talked about that in question one. A few of you talked about question two, not too many, about biology as race and race as being socially constructed. And question three, a few of you talked about race as a social construction, and you gave some really great examples. Um, there was someone who talked about Latinx identity and the social construction of Latino women and the use of imagery to hypersexualize um, Latino women in terms of their bodies. Um, and, you know, the example of Jennifer Lopez and that image um, being used as a, a marker of of, of how Latino, Latino women are portrayed. And so um, again, this you know this uh, sort of stock uh, portrayal uh, homogenizes communities. And you know, as a result of that, you deny the diversity among Latinx people, um, particularly those from indigenous and black roots. And um, the idea that you know that diversity also has a diversity that is, you know, not just, um, in terms of physical appearance, but also in terms of the culture itself. Um, and I think someone talked about, you know, how this construction added to that discussion to talk about the idea of mestizo, which is a classification on the basis of biology. And that's a really important thing when we talk about the social construction of race, it's the labeling of particular groups and who constructs those labels and how does the construction of those labels determine how people are treated. Um, the next a set of questions was uh, in lesson two, and I'm just going to talk briefly about this because most of you talked about, you know, COVID and the uh, intersections of, of race with other aspects of social difference. And you talked about your own experiences of COVID based on your social identities and how that really um, shows that 
concept of intersectionality that Anderson and Collins talks about. Um, you gave some great examples. Again, the idea of transportation, social distancing, um, you know, what social distance means to particular communities on the basis of race and class. Um, you know, when people, some of you talked about sharing spaces. Um, and because, again, uh, intergenerational, where it's not just, you know, your immediate family, but generations in your family that share a household, and how that become makes it really harder uh, in terms of social distancing, but also the fear of when you have older people in your household who are more vulnerable, there's also, you know, that fear of, you know, if you do get it, what repercussions will it have for your family members, whereby people who live in neighborhoods who have a higher socioeconomic level, and again, that intersects with race, um, who have bigger homes, who can afford to work from home, who have jobs that allow them to work from home, um, and therefore can maintain those social distance measures or all of those things that need to be done in order to protect themselves. Um, or even the idea that um, certain communities are, are, are being demonized, like for example, the Asian community and the rise of anti-Asian um, uh, racism. Um, and so, uh, uh, sorry, Asian racism and how, you know, this notion of fear and hate and people worrying about their relatives, particularly older relatives, being um, attacked. Um, and what was really nice to see is the compassion that people had for one another in terms of when people expressed these fears. It was really, really uh, nice to see that some of you really um, were very compassionate in your response to your peers. And that's a really big part of you know, fighting hate and racism and any form of discrimination is to be able to see our own humanity in other people and to feel that compassion and to act on that compassion too, which we'll talk about later in the course when we talk about the notion of agency and action. Um, you know, um, you talked, many of you talked about the precarious work that people of color have had to uh, disproportionately occupy, and as a result of that, puts them at greater risk in terms of um, being able to protect themselves, uh, not having access to health or benefits that allow them to take sick days, all of these kinds of things. And so it's, um, or even our, our legislation, our lockdown legislation, and the, you know, the Ford's uh, government wanting to police people, and how that disproportionately impacts negatively impacts communities of color and um, or even just access to housing in Toronto. So access to space um, and not just housing, but also public spaces. So for those of us who have homes, who have private spaces like backyards, you can go out and you can take that um, walk or get outside, whereby for people who live in public, um, uh, sorry, in, in apartments, um, have to go out and, and into public spaces and how that creates greater risks for them, or um, and so on. So, a lot of really good examples where people worked and how the media portrays communities of color as being um, because of their own high numbers. Whereby, um, when you look at communities, some some of you talked to great examples of like, for example, the Amazon facility and how in in certain areas, uh, you know, where those factories are located, who's working in those factories, and the spread of COVID in places like, like these manufacturing industries, where it's really hard to maintain social distance measures, where there's not all of these things like paid sick uh, days, 
and how that disproportionately impacts those peoples or those communities, which are largely new immigrant, highly uh, uh, um, racialized um, students, um, young people, who are those essential workers and who are blamed for their high numbers without looking at the systemic conditions of inequality that creates these high numbers. And so many of you pointed that out, and I think that was a really uh, good um, good example of the way in which the intersections of race with class and age and gender and um, you know immigrant status, all of these kinds of things. A few of you talked about are migrant, the Canada's migrant workers on farms, which is another really telling example of the way in which people with a lack of status are treated. Um, in terms of our society. And so congratulations to all of you in terms of your, your answers, those answers that were really strong, had a really good grasp of concepts and, um, and also gave great examples. Uh, just one other question very quickly, uh, the question on women, uh, white and women of color and how they differentially ex experience racism. A few of you um, talked about the Anderson Collins article in the example of slavery. And I think that was a really good um, understanding of it. And one person really, I really wanted to give a shout out is they gave the example of Sharon Osborne and her response to Piers Morgan in uh, the whole Meghan Markle incident and how she was, you know, how white women can often resort to tears and weaponize it with the weaponizing of tears whereby people of color, black women in particular, are not um, privy to those emotions because they're read very differently. And so that was a great example of the way in which um, women of color, and in particularly this case, white women and black women are differentially treated um, and those intersections. So again, congratulations to everybody. Um, I really appreciated and really enjoyed reading those discussion posts. So I look forward to the next discussion post.